Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrowcom slash ACAST. burrowcom slash ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to episode 103 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings, and 10 years ago, I gave up my live streaming career as a radio presenter with one big regret. Never getting to interview my hero, the legendary British musician, Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. And here we are, a real pinch me moment on the podcast once again, my very special guest, London's first lady of soul, P.P. Arnold. Her story is that of a rich and varied life from her early musical origins in powerhouse church gospel. The talented singer's career began when she joined the Ike and Tina Turner Review at the age of just 17. We'll hear all about that. And how she arrived in London in 1966 to support the Rolling Stones as a shy but vivacious 19-year-old and caught the eye of frontman Mick Jagger. He persuaded her to stay in the city and record as a solo artist, ultimately leading to a five-decade career working with everyone from Jagger, Rod Stewart, The Small Faces and Nick Drake, to Barry Gibb, Peter Gabriel, Roger Waters, The KLF, Primal Scream, and of course, Stevie Craddock and Paul Weller. However, it's been far from a gilded life for the musical star who, after being forced into marriage at the age of 15 upon becoming pregnant, went on to endure a string of personal traumas, including physical abuse from her husband, sexual abuse at the hands of her one-time musical mentor, and later the tragic loss of her young daughter in a road accident. For the first time, she is now telling her remarkable story, Soul Survivor. Her autobiography has just been published. So we'll hear all about that and how she came to create music with Paul for his album A Kind Revolution, the majestic Woosie Mama, along with tracks for her most recent album, her first LP of new material in 51 years that was produced, engineered, and arranged by Steve Craddock, and a couple of songs supplied by Paul. This is another very, very special conversation, an unbelievable guest. Let's get into it. P.P. Arnold, Pat, how are you doing? Thanks for joining me. Well, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. I'm honoured to have you on. I'm also honoured of the fact that I'm coming off the back of an interview with Johnny Walker. You've just been having a chat with Johnny <laughs> Another legend. Wow. Yeah, that's right. Johnny and I have been friends for many, many, many years. We go back to the Radio Caroline days. And I've spoken to him many, many, many times. And he's so lovely. And he loves the book. And we were like going through like the 70s music from the 70s and things. As we speak now, you're right off the back of Fresh from Glastonbury last weekend. Avalon say Sunday afternoon. Wow. I mean, I bet that was a great experience, isn't it? Yeah, it really was. I was glad that I got there, actually, because I had a little bout with COVID earlier, a few days. I tested negative on the Thursday. So I was thinking like, hallelujah. But I threw the everything, including the kitchen sink at COVID. I tell you, COVID was like, they probably said, let me leave this woman alone and mess with somebody who's scared of me. You know what I mean? <laughs> they hadn't met you. They hadn't come up against you before. No, he hadn't come up against somebody because 
I was prepared, you know, my, my cabinet, I'm into regenerative nutrition. I had all my homeopathic stuff, you know, I was like throwing garlic and onions and ginger and cayenne pepper. That's my normal morning drink anyway. Yeah, boy, I gave it, I threw it everything, you know, steaming and I didn't have it really bad, really, to be honest. You know, it's just my head was kind of stuffed up, but my throat was cool and I was able to, you know, you know, do my vocal exercises every day, you know, but it was a drag not being able to sing out because I hadn't did a gig for about a month, you know, so it's a whole different thing. And then we weren't able, the band weren't able to rehearse because of all the rail strikes and everything. And I had a lovely, um, a lovely guy playing guitar who had never played with the band. Bradley Burgess is his name. I think he played with a band called, is it Portishead? Oh, yeah. 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 Or something, yeah. But he was fantastic. You know, he, that, this guy, he had like, he didn't come on stage with no things written down. You know, he had done the work. And yeah, so we had a good time, even though the sound, you know, it's a festival. So the onstage monitoring was, shall I say, shit. Yeah. <laughs> now, Pat, the thing I feel with, with your voice, is that I don't think you need any amplification. And uh, even at Glastonbury, with 100,000 <laughs> old people, it's like, wow, that voice. I mean, where does that come from? Goodness me. Well, you know, it's really a gift, I tell you. I definitely need help because I had more pleasure on bass behind me. <laughs> and Tony was right behind me kicking ass on the drums. And just the sound was terrible, really. And we don't really do ears. I don't do ears because, first of all, I don't even know how to use them. I can never hear. I don't, that whole thing of being isolated from what is actually going on. I'm so old school. Having a good onstage monitoring thing is really important to me so I can hear. But I had a really good, my sound engineer, Simon, front of house. I knew he was going to be taking care of business and he did. So apparently it all sounded good. Everybody was happy. It was only me moaning because I couldn't hit a couple of notes that I really wanted to. COVID had left me a little dehydrated. And so I'm really hard on myself. If I can hear it, I want to be able to reach it. But you know, that's just me. At least I was singing in tune. Yeah, More than you, I can say for a few people that was on there, I won't uh, call no names. <laughs> we know what you mean. We know what you mean. We all want. <laughs> now, as this is the Paul Weller Fan Podcast, we're going to dig into some of your links, your memories, your stories with Paul. But we'll talk about your autobiography, Soul Survivor, which at the time of release is in shops right now as well, which is honestly an incredible read. I've read the book. I've also started the audio book as well because I wanted to hear you. Oh, wow. I really want to hear the audio book. Oh, that's Wow, that's great. It's really good. Really good. Yeah. Cause it, cause you, oh, well, because I was wondering if my voice sounded okay, if I yeah. was too loud, if I was too, you know. No, no, but you read it with passion. And we'll, well, look, we'll talk about a lot of this stuff, all right? Because okay, I'm aware yeah, of time right. as well. So, Mr. Paul Weller, let's kick off with this, right? So, when was it you first became aware of Paul's music? And how did you first link up with Paul? When would that have been, roughly? Well, you know, like I became aware of, of Paul's music. When I came back to the UK in the 80s. Yeah, the jam. I wasn't around when the jam was actually happening, but I found out about the jam after that. And I actually, the first time I met Paul was with Steve Craddock, you know, through Steve Craddock and through the Ocean Color scene. I did a kind of a jam with him at some festival in North London. Might have been like Finsbury Park or somewhere in that direction. Okay. So that's the first time. And then I also jammed with him at another gig, you know, as a result of my relationship with Steve Craddock. And that's how we first actually met. He gave me that song, Shoot the Dove, when Steve and I were doing pre-production back in the 90s, when we first started doing pre-production for the new adventures. But things when it almost kind of turned out to be one of those Barry Gibbs session things where everything was put on the shelf and never done. But Steve didn't let that happen, you know. And um, so, and and he got back in touch with me in around 2016, I think it might have been, 2016. And he had moved to the house in Devon and he had been listening to the tracks and 
you know, and he called me, you know, and he apologized for a few things that we had been through and everything. And he just said he'd been listening to the tracks and he really wanted to do them. And, you know, I feel like, yeah, man, let's do it. Definitely. Because I always believed that Steve and I were just the right fit. We were brought together and I say it and I believe it. The spirit of Steve Marriott brought me and Steve together, you know, and the first time I saw them at, I was doing a show at the, uh, what's mu- on this island? Yeah, it was a musical, at the Birmingham wasn't it? Birmingham yeah. Rep, yeah. Right. And those guys turned up, I got a call to come backstage and they turned up and they had this big bouquet of flowers and they introduced themselves and they wanted me to go to the studio straight away with them that night. But I couldn't really because our show was like finishing that night and we were going back to London. So I didn't really come back in in contact with them again until the tribute album was being done for Ronnie Lane when all the stuff, everything started happening. So anyway, a lot of time went by and Steve got in touch with me in 2016 and we started working straight away, you know, and. Paul, I had played him some of the stuff from the Turning Tide album. I was trying to find a way to get that stuff out. There's a note in the book, 2017, The Turning Tide. would have been your third album back in the day. And it says, 50 years after recording some of my most important music produced by Barry Gibb and Eric Clapton, I finally acquired the license to release it. In 2017, with the help of Steve Craddock, Paul Weller, and my supportive solicitor, Simon Long, these recordings were made public. So let's chat The Turning Tide. It'd be good to understand a bit more about that. 50 years, over 50 years, yeah. It has been on the shelf since 1970, 1971, since I recorded it. Those the Barry tracks we recorded between 68 and 70 so wow. you know a lot of record business politics but anyway finally fought for all those years to get the rights to be able to release it but i needed to mix it and i didn't have no money and da 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 da, da. and so i played the tracks to steve and steve really loved them and then he called uh, paul and paul let me come in there and uh, a mix Charles mixed those tracks beautifully, you know. Steve, Paul, and Charles came to the rescue, and so, like, that hooked me up with Steve, uh, with, with Paul again. Yeah, we'll talk more about your connections with Paul in a sec, but let's talk your autobiography, Soul Survivor. So at the time of release of this podcast, it's in shops now. It's described as the long-awaited memoir of a true soul survivor. What was it that made you, at this point in your life, what was it at this moment that made you want to tell your story? Why now? And Well, it wasn't that. I wrote, I started writing the book around that same time in 1994 when I met Ocean Color Scene. After our show, What's on This Island, was closed. I was like, after the show was closed, I I wasn't working. So I had time. So, so I just started writing. I just started writing. And uh, mm. then, 1994, and then... I thought I had finished the book, and then I um, I was downloading the book from Time Machine onto a portable disc, and I lost it. No, what a whole lot! I know I lost. Oh, the book. What? So it, was a good thing, it was a good thing. It was my life story. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so I had to go back. I had notes and things, but you know, but. But I completely changed it because then I thought, you know, if I'm going to be writing, uh, you know, I'm a soul singer, you know, first lady of soul and all of that. And my gospel roots, I'm going to take this where the music comes from. I wanted to take it all the way back to the plantation. So let's go there, you know, with, with like all those hymns. And so that's what I did. So I rewrote it. I did a lot of ancestry work and found my great-great-granddaddy, Miles Hawkins, who I'd never heard of. My parents, you know, we never, but I did that answering that we work from that period, 1860 or something, you know, after the slaves were supposed to be free. So it became where the book is. So the book was just more than than my um, music business adventures. It was like coming from like my family roots, my roots as a young woman and my journey from there and all the stuff, you know, a lot of it's been 
you know, my childhood. It's a remarkable tale, I have to say. So, I mean, it's one of those things where, and it's a tough read at time, isn't it? So as people would expect, if they know, you know, if they know your story at all, they'll know, you know, they'll know that. But if you saw this as a work of fiction, I was thinking about this this morning, if you saw this as a work of fiction, a film or a TV miniseries, which you absolutely could be because so much has happened in your life, you'd kind of go, well, this is a bit far-fetched. This is unbelievable. Yeah, this is your life. I mean, goodness me. My life. And and it's a woman's story too. It's a story of a young girl who made a big mistake, ditched my musical appreciation class. And, you know, one class, I didn't even ditch a whole day. I just ditched that class because he had been bugging me and bugging me. And, you know, and, and so, you know, when you're a young, young girl and you're infatuated. And, yeah, you're in love. And yeah, so right. cute. And, you know, and I, I like to kiss, you know, I was a good kisser. <laughs> always, always like to kiss. So I thought, OK, I'll just like just the class, not for sex or anything. I have no sex was nowhere in my mind. I just thought, you know, a little little kissing and a little petting and stuff and I'd be okay. But then, you know, like I got jumped on and then bam, the rest is history, really. So, yeah, so it's that story of a, of a young girl who gets caught up in this whole life and who's like ends up in this abusive teen marriage and how do you get out of that? You know, like prayer. The song is about prayer. It's about faith. It's about the unexpected ruling in my life. And all these things happen that the universe that God sent to like take me out of different things, move me. I went from one hell to the next a lot of the time. It was still cool. You know, like, I mean, for me, my journey into music and working with the Argentina Turner Review. And that was like, uh, I mean, out of all the other stuff that everybody knows that happens and things will be about people reading my book about what happened and everything. But the whole vibe of working with Argentina Turner was just a bomb. For that to be, to start my career working with musicians and artists on that level, a young girl who had just, I'd only sung in, I love to sing, but I'd only sung in church. I knew nothing about the world. I had no ambition to be in this at all. For that to be my first gig, to start on that level, to learn the basics of everything from Tina Turner, you know what I mean? The book starts in 65, 1965, with you pretty much starts with you getting that gig with Ike and Tina Turner. And they've been a yeah. duo, what, for four or five years at that point. So obviously, you know, huge stars, well known. And you make it sound so easy. You make that audition bit sound so easy. It's like <laughs> we sang a little bit and then bang, you've got the job, right? <laughs> well, we did. You know, yeah. I didn't know. I was shy. I was scared. But I knew dancing in the streets, you know, I knew the song and, and all my brothers and sisters sing. So, you know, I knew all the parts and everything, but I was really shy. I had two sets of iCats. Gloria Scott sang with the B group that used to go on the road with the Dick Clark show. So Gloria knew that the iCats with the review were leaving. She wanted to be in the review. And so my brother... Ex-girlfriend Maxine Smith, they were going to this audition and the girl, another girlfriend of my brother's, Cookie, didn't show up for the audition. So they called me out of desperation, you know, because Maxine, you know me, she knew I could sing and everything like that, even though I wasn't a singer. They, they were desperate, so they called me and refused to take no for an answer. So they, <laughs> yeah. hung, they hung up the phone and then they showed up at my door and I had to lie. And then suddenly I was there. So I, I was just doing my little harmony for dancing in the streets. Right. And Gloria did something else. And I, you know, I have a good ear. So I found me a harmony. Next thing I know, Tina was going like, right, girls, you got the gig. And I go like, oh, no. What? <laughs> You know, not me. I can't go. I'm in big trouble. I'm going to be in big time trouble when I get home. And so like Tina, like said to me, well, if you're going to get in trouble for nothing, why don't you ride up to Fresno with us? Which is about 300 miles from L.A. You know, they had a gig that night in Fresno. Why don't you ride up to Fresno with us and at least see the show? 
Well, you know, it's like the day had already taken on a life of its own. So I thought, okay, I never got a chance to do anything, go anywhere. I had missed out on being a teenager and all of that. So I thought, <laughs> it's also that thing you thought of, like, I'm in trouble anyway. That's it's not, right. Yeah, it's not going to make any difference right. if I go off I to might the as well yeah. go. I might as well at least have one day of fun. So, yeah, so that's the first time I uh, saw them performing. And, and, and they really wanted me to go. I don't know what they, you know, I didn't have confidence like that. I knew how to sing. I loved to sing. But I had no confidence about being an artist or being a singing professionally or anything like that. Cause I was really shy. I was kind of, I was kind of, what's the word, damaged really. Yeah. Really. I was kind of damaged really. Cause I had been going through all this whole thing. So I didn't really have any confidence. And so anyway, it all worked out. <laughs> in the book. From reading the book, it sounds like it was a, it was bloody hard work. Like, yeah, you put in a, you put in a shift, right? And that's true all the way through the book, I think. But also um, the dancing as well, right? So when you watched Ike and Tina Turner, it wasn't just the singing. You, you had, and, and it's proper like energetic dance. dancing, right? So you had to do all I that. I love to dance. You know, I got four brothers and a sister. You know what I mean? And, and we were like personification of Motown and everything else. I knew all the native <laughs> dances and all that stuff. So that was it, the routines. It was just like suddenly you were like, I never did it professionally. You take direction. I've always been good at that. Somebody shows me what to do. They tell me what they want me to do and what they need. Show me what they want. Nine times out of ten, I'm going to give it. I love it. I love to sing. I have a great ear. And in those days, I love to dance. I'm trying to think about getting in touch with O.T. You know O.T. from, from Strictly Death? Yeah, I yeah. O.T. Oh, we need P.P. Arnold on Strictly Come Dancing. Come on. No, no, not Strictly. <laughs> I don't even want to go that far. I just want her to help Grandma get some, get some, a little movement. <laughs> I, saw, I saw a couple of, somebody put some videos on the, on the YouTube and I saw a little couple of grandma moves moving in there and I thought, Oh no. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I got to oh, shake those off, right? <laughs> please help me. <laughs> I love movement, but I don't want to be like you know, doing all that stuff. I, I, I'm not going to be Mick Jagger still running across the stage like that. I don't, I don't need that much energy, but I just want movement. I want to be graceful. I want to be sexy. I want to be feminine without looking like grandma. All right. Okay. You and I love my grandma too. I love, I love that, but I don't want to move like grandma. You mentioned Mick Jagger. As part of the Ike and Tina review, you come to London, you tour with the Rolling Stones, and it's it's Mick who signs, it gets you this signing as a solo artist, right? For the well, record label, or, or way, introduces you, know, you, right? I really found out in recent years, you know Glenn Johns? Well, I saw Glenn at a festival in 2017. Glenn was there and he told me, he goes like, Pat, he said, you need to know this. He said, it was not Mick who told Andrew about you. He said it was Ian Stewart. So Glenn and Ian Stewart put the B in Andrew's ear that there was this iCat. He needed to check me out because I was the lead singer with the iCats and I was good. Ike was giving me a hard time when I got to England because I was a really shy, inhibited Iket, never had a teenage life or anything. And suddenly I was there and they were swinging London and wow, and oh, we're on trip with the Golden Stones and all of this. And, and Mick was like, Mick used to make me laugh, you know, he used to make me laugh really because, you know, he wanted to move like a black man, talk like a black man, you know, do the whole thing. And he had, but he was so cute, you know. <laughs> he was so well, for, for somebody who loves kissing, those lips were amazing, yeah, right? Those lips, I'm telling you, the lips, you know, like a, inviting, you know. So, but, but really, we were just friends because I used to laugh at him and he laughed at me, you know what I mean? And, and so we just became friends and then, after the shows, you know, there were all the discotheques. We had never had that kind of vibe. After the show, go to the discotheques. We worked so hard, we never had time to, like, do anything in, in the States. You know, I could, you know, yeah, we were on the road for yeah. 90 days and working 90 days. And we probably had about three or four days out of those 90 days off. 
So yeah, Mickey and I just like started and then we, we became an item. It was like me, like really the first time in my life that I've been a teen, a, a young girl, you know, and I was kind of like in London and this whole swinging thing is happening. And I had never, I mean, I come from a segregated community. I've never, and then here I am in England crossing that little thin line, that taboo line of mm. hanging out with a white boy. Yeah. And it just happened to be Mick Jagger. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think also you lived, I lived in Sutton, Carl Shorten. I think you lived down the road in Epsom for a bit, didn't you? I did. I, I, I did. I lived in Epsom because that's what happened. Because when the last gig that we did with Icantina, the plan was after we planned to like that I was going to stay, the plan was the last gig we did was the Ram Jam Club in Brixton. So I sneaked all my gear into a locker room at the Ram Jam Club. And while we were on stage, Glenn Johns and Stu got my gear and put it in the car. So as soon as I came off stage, they were waiting for me to take me to Epsom because that's where Stu, it was Stu and, and Glenn's house. They lived there with their girlfriends and that was the plan. That's where I was going to be like taken until they found out what to do with me and where to put me and everything. And the Stones were going on tour and, and Mick anyway. So, yeah. So yeah. I was staying in Epsom, first place I lived in England. Yeah. Let's talk about those first two solo albums. So the first Lady of Immediate in 67 and Kafunsa came soon after as well with your versions of things like Eleanor Rigby, which is just gorgeous. The Tim yeah, Harden track. Covers. All covers. That, Tim Harden's that It'll Never Happen Again. Um, yep. The Stones, as tears go by. Be beautiful, right? But... I, we have to talk about the cover of that album as well, because you yeah. worked with um, Gerard Mankiewicz, yeah. who did this cover, yeah. right? And there's a link with Paul Weller. I don't know if you know this. What, with Gerard? Yeah, he did the cover. I'm quite sure. I'm sure yeah. that he, he did work with Gerard. Gerard's worked with everybody. Yeah, well, that's true. Yeah, I mean, gosh, he's, he's covers of you know, Kate Bush and the Stones and everything, right? But He's, he's traveled. He's worked with loads and loads of people. I'm, I'm really fortunate. You know, like he was my first photographer. And the majority of my photos in the industry through the years have been taken by Garrett. I mean, he took all the all the last, the turn yeah, the, the most recent albums, yeah. The new adventures. Yeah. And, you know, I love him dearly, and he's a really, really good friend. And those pictures that Garrett took, Garrett knew, you know, how shy, and, and he, he managed to always, when I look at those photos, especially the First Lady photos, and I know how shy, I know how scared I was, I know how introverted, but he just always seemed to, like, reach in there and, just get my very soul. So we're good friends and I I, I trust him. Nice. I've always felt, you know, at ease with Garrett and we have fun and yeah, he's a lovely, lovely man. Nice, nice. Well, yes, he did the Modern World album. He did, I think, Absolute Beginners, some of the stuff with the Style Council that's used a lot of... There's, wow, a, there's yeah. a picture of Paul in the back of this truck with all these amps, these Vox amps behind him with, with wow. Nick Silver. That's great. But that album cover, Confunza, I mean, wow, your hair, my goodness me, that is incredible. Well, that was the vision came from, uh, you know, the thing about Andrew, it's a pity what happened with Immediate Records because... Andrew Oldham was creative, yeah, creative management. That was his idea, the whole Kafunta thing. And it came at a time when I was just like coming into my my blackness. You know, James Brown did, I'm black and I'm proud. And I was ready to take the wigs off, do all of that. But Andrew had this vision. And so like the, there was like Vidal Sassoon and then there was another hairdresser, Leonard's. I don't know if Leonard's is still still exists, but they did the hair and the makeup. And it was so futuristic with all the ostrich feathers and eyelashes and everything. And Garrett also won Photographer's Award for the best album, Sleeve, okay. for that in 68. Right. And then when I went to... South Africa with Roger. The first time I went to Cape Town with Roger Waters, I'm in the hotel and I get a phone call from the receptionist downstairs. And she goes like, are you P.P. Arnold? Are you P.P. Arnold? And I go like, yes, because 
they thought that I had passed away because people had heard that I lost my daughter and they thought it was me, right? And then that's when I found out that that album was a huge hit in South Africa during the time of apartheid. Right, wow. That's right, it really was. And these people from the Kaleidoscope group, they put their money together. It was kind of like a church thing and brought me back there in 2016. And I did a whole show based, I sung the whole Kapunta album. Wow. And That's I took incredible. A, wow. I, I took my hairstylist, Nicole Iro, and we recreated hairdos and everything for that. And, and it was really, really, really fabulous. People came from townships with albums that were so worn. The covers were so worn. They played it. That album was really inspirational to uh, Black South Africans during apartheid, and I didn't even know. That's amazing. Wow, that is incredible. What a great story. So many people have asked me to ask you about the small faces. So let's talk about this. So um, this was... Late 67, 68, you were on tour with The Faces. There's some wonderful TV appearances on YouTube, which I'll put in the show notes for this. I mean, you're incredible. The band are incredible. It's just brilliant. Um, and you've obviously, you're a ba- uh, backing vocalist, or if you can even say that, I think, you know, you're duetting on these things, right? You know, on the, some of their biggest songs, like HQ Park and Tin Soldier. There's a wonderful French TV performance of Tin Soldier, which I'll share. Just, yeah. just honestly, mind-blowing. And, <laughs> and obviously, Mr. Weller, this is the Paul Weller fan podcast, just as a reminder, obviously is famously obsessed with the small Faces. So has this come up in conversation with Paul about your work with the, the Small Faces at all? Because he's such a fan, isn't he? Well, well, he is. But, you know, to be honest, Paul and I have never, like, really just kind of, like, had a sit down, throw down. It's always stuff going on, you know. I've been in the studio with him and recording. And what was the last album, that album that I did with him recently? So you did A Kind Revolution, Woozy Mama. Woosie yeah, Mama. yeah. Yeah, see, Mama with Madeline Bell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. wow. And uh, but but we never just kind of like just sat down and chilled and chewed the fat, as they say back yeah. home. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but uh, I'm sure we will at some point. Steve, Steve Marriott. You know, the small faces. Yeah, but my real kind of like relationship was with Steve Marriott. Steve Marriott and I were just like brother and sister. And yeah, we hung out. We messed around a little bit. You know what I mean? But but that wasn't what our relationship was supposed to be about. And we knew that. And, you know, and then he had his girl up and you like, all those guys, you know, like, please, you know, you had to be careful back then. You know, I mean, that's not like anything to move. They was on it, you know. So, <laughs> so, but Steve and I were like really, 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 really close friends. And Steve is the only person that actually took me home to meet his mom and daddy and uh. meet the family, you know. But as a friend, not as a girlfriend, as a mate. You know, we were mates. And musically together, the two of you, I mean, there was we clearly just, chemistry as performers. You, oh, wow. You sound great together, don't you? Well, we just connected because he was like my brothers. You know, my brothers, I have brothers who sing. But Steve, to me, Steve is the best British singer, uh, R&B, soul singer, rock singer to me that I love Stevie Winwood too mm. and I know there's a few other people that have divinity but I mean um, as you talking about getting to the heart to the heart and soul and just like throw down vocals that's Steve. Steve gave you everything. You you got everything when he was on stage. He gave you his heart and his soul you know I mean and I'm like that too you know like I have to give it there's no way I can hold back you know, because I sing ballads as well. So I know how to change the vibe and the energy. And because it's all about expression, you know, with me as a singer and diction, I always want to get that story out there. You know, I really want to get get the story and let people know what the song is about. Dee, man. <laughs> I might have been shy. But I've always had a lot of energy. So a lot of people couldn't deal with Steve. They couldn't keep up with it. 
Well, you know, like, I, you know, I could hang in there. Plus, he was very sensitive. And, you know, we used to travel a lot together. He didn't like traveling by airplane at all. So, you know, I'd always have to sit by him and everything and hold his hand. And, you know, I was like, it's like mama. I was on mama on the road with those guys anyway, you know, because that's what I do. You know, you look after your guys and we were all young and they were young. They yeah, were. yeah. Well, a couple of questions from the fans, right? So the, who, who I mentioned I was chatting with you today. So Joan Nellis, can Pat see any similarities between Paul Weller and Steve Marriott? Certainly given the, given the influence that the small faces had on Paul and not in his music, but writing and his vocal delivery, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, he deserves the Mod Father title. If Steve was here, it might be a different story. <laughs> that'd, be that'd be arm wrestling for the title, wouldn't it? Yeah, no, but, uh, but uh, Paul has definitely earned it. And he's an amazing artist, an amazing songwriter, an amazing musician. You know, look at all the great records. It speaks for, for himself. He's a lovely guy. I've heard this. I mean, nobody's really said, nobody said that he's a git or is annoying. Oh, like, everybody no. loves him, Dan. He's a lovely guy. <laughs> you, know, kid, you know, there's no ego there. You know, he's a beautiful, beautiful man. And, a, and he's always, like, so respectful. And so I love him. He's, and I want him to know that. I so appreciate his support. I'm always going through such hard times, struggling, <laughs> trying to get, do this and do that that I don't get a chance to really like, um, you know, like I'm not on the scene. I was living in Spain, so I'm not on the scene. I don't really get hang that much or anything. But whenever we're together, we have a good time, you know, and he's lovely and and, and, and he's just so warm. I love I love you, Paul. So many people will have you discovered you mentioned Ocean Colour scene earlier on. So many people like myself would have discovered you through that band and performing with that band. And I've got a few questions. Um, I love the fact that they just turned up at the theatre with a bunch of flowers for you. <laughs> Beautiful. What a lovely thing. Um, so another couple of questions from the fans. So this is from a Norwegian Irish Brit pop band, Todd and Karen. They say one of the thing, uh, one of the songs that have inspired us most in our music making is the song It's a Beautiful Thing, which was done with Ocean oh. Colour Scene. Such a wonderful song. Oh, I can, got chill bumps. Chills, uh, yeah. Ken Pat, spill some beans on how that lovely thing came to fruition. So how did that song come about? Well, it just came about. They wrote it, you know, and they asked me to do a duet with them. And, um, yeah, and we just did it. Well, they went and flipped away. And, uh, nah, nah, nah. I'm not going to interrupt because I just want to hear you sing. You know, I just love <laughs> melody, such a thing. And then it has that heart, that, that heartfelt chord. Oh, it's a beautiful thing. You know, it's just like, ah, oh, it's just a great song. And I think Foxy and I just did a wonderful, wonderful vocal thing. And that video with Steve just being like the, the little magic man all over the place, you know, yeah. the music, you know, the I mean, because Steve is a monster guitarist. You know, that guy can play. He knows his instrument. And he's like, he knows the music. He's such a great producer. We have to talk about Let's talk about this. So this is, there we are. Look at that. The New Adventures of P.P. Arnold. So this was, I mean, yeah. 51 years in the making. <laughs> That's right. And it needs to be like, really, I'm really glad that I'm back. I need to promote that album again because... COVID, you know, like, I mean, it messed it up for everybody. Yeah, because that would have been, what, 2019. So you were then touring the album and COVID had, happened, right? We did. We had toured it. We had so much support from the media, the tour, the fans. And 2020, like for everybody else, was going to be the year for that album. So then COVID came. And so, like, you know, I've sort of tried to keep the vibe alive for it, you know, through on, on my social media and stuff. But I haven't been, I'm not the greatest on the social media thing. I'm getting better with it. I know what I have to do now. I found a few tricks. And so, like, I'm getting ready to, like, come. But I really want to promote that album. That's a beautiful, beautiful, both of those albums, The Turning Tide 
But that work with Steve and I, it's some incredible stuff on there. So Steve Craddock, as we mentioned, such an important part of the story in recent years, produced the album mixed by Paul's engineer, Charles Reese, and Steve's son, Cass, on guitar and flute. I saw him play with Leah Weller recently, What's a Talent, Steve Pilgrim, Ben Gordelia from Paul's band, and a couple of Paul Weller written songs on there, When I Was Past Your Picture, which he sings backing vocals and plays bass on as well, and Shoot the Dove. Plus, he also plays guitar on Hold On To Your Dreams as well. We recorded that album from like me and Steve, keyboards and vocals. So everything built around my vocal through that, that root, through the melody. He built it up like that. And that is so clever because most of the time producers, run, you know, they lay the track down. Sometimes they be in the wrong key. They didn't think to ask you what key you sing in. You know what I mean? People do that. So it's built around your thing. So the whole feeling of all the, everything is coming from the artist and from the producer and his feel. Because we just like, we gel. Like Steve Marriott, Steve and I have that same, that same relationship. That same love for one another, that same respect for one another. The thing I love that about that Dylan tune, you know, yeah. that we did oh. the rap yeah, tune. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The last thoughts on Woody Guthrie, right? Yeah, the last thoughts on Woody Guthrie and uh, my daughter's song, uh, I'll Always Remember You. It's some really sensitive stuff on there. Finally found my way back home. I'm a dreamer. The baby blue track. Oh, yeah. The uh, the doo-wop. Still trying. I relate to that so much, you know, still trying. There's so many things I love about this album. But the thing is, it sounds like, and this is a compliment, it sounds like it's something that's been hidden in a time machine for those 50 years and we've just uncovered it. But it also sounds like it's right now as well. And I don't know how you've achieved that. I guess there's a production element of that as well, but it sounds like it was of the time back in the day, but it sounds so fresh and unique for right now as well. It's beautiful. That's the love of that music from the 60s that I come from. That That's a good, good, good point because I brought some people on board in this last tour. It all worked out and everything. But, but like the 2019 tour with Steve and the whole band, the, everybody loves that music. Yeah. They're real mods. It's Northern Soul. It's mods. That's why I don't feel, I never feel like no competition with this one for that one and this one. That's my, I feel that I have my own sound, my own niche. I know my fans. I know what my fans want to hear. And, I'm, and I've got like such a big catalog. I need to do gigs, like do like one gig, but for three days, you know, <laughs> yeah. put me at one venue for three days. Then I can do everything. One night I'll do these songs, the next night I'll do this. And actually, that's a good idea. We need to make that happen, Pat. Yeah, gosh. We need to make that happen because (laughs) that way I can get the whole catalog, all those songs, and the kids need to hear all of that stuff, you know, because it's just, that's my thing. In the 70s, I kind of got a little lost, you know, because everybody, you know, because I come from, I'm the church, and I know how to do all that riffing and all of that whole stuff. But that's not my thing. And I went back to the States, and everybody was, you know, everybody want to be Chaka Khan. Everybody want to do, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm more like Aretha. I mean, I'm closer to that kind of style of ad lib and thing, you know, but even not so much. My thing, I, I have like that mixture of like uh, Dionne Warwick and... Aretha, Gladys Knight, Mavis Staples. Those are my idols. The most important thing, I have a distinctive sound. I call it the hot lick syndrome. I really thought I was square, you know, because everybody else was all ripping. I went back to L.A. and it made me feel like, ooh, you know, she ain't really that cool. She's doing all that stuff in England. All of that, mm, that's not, that, that ain't black enough for us, you know, or something. And I got lost for a minute. And then I realized I love my music. I love what I did. So that's the thing. You have to make, when you have the people playing that music who love that music, it's timeless. You know, for me, I work hard on my vocals. 
I work hard on my fitness. I work hard on nutrition, you know, because that's what I'm, that's what I do. I don't have kids anymore. I don't have a husband. Lord, I don't know why. Well, you know, like, you know, I just had so many, so many troubles in my life. You know what I mean? But I don't have a partner. So, like, I'm on my own. I got loads of time. You know, like, it's like, it's like music. So just develop, work on myself, work on myself. And I love to sing. Another thing that people should dig into as well is um, 2007. This was you working with Dr. Robert. Another Weller oh, connection. Yeah. Marco Nelson as well. Five, five um, in the afternoon. Yeah. So how did that come about? How did you two connect? Well, we connected in Spain. A friend of mine had a party in the valley because Robert lives in the valley. And I live right on the coast, Salabrenia. So a friend of mine wanted me to go to this party. I went to a party in the valley. And Robert and those guys were jamming at the party. And I got up and I jammed with him. And we just thought, well, wow, you know, like maybe we can do something. So it was like an independent project that we did together. But Robert had all the songs and he wrote the songs. And I was on the road with Roger Waters at the time, which was great. I wish I had been involved in the writing, in the process of writing everything. But I came back and I did whenever I had time off the road, we would record the tracks. And it was a it was a uh, independent project that we we did together. 50-50, you know, like so. So that's cool. It's a great album. I love those songs. Those songs like really remind me uh, of like they go back to like a kind of like a folk kind of blues, folky kind of vibe. Like I could relate to that vibe really well for my family. You know, that groove, that whole groove. Yeah, the beautiful songs. And it's still happening. And it's going to still happen. Those tracks are going to be on the box set as well. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask you, actually, while, we, while we're on the subject of Woosie Mama earlier on, so presumably that was down at Ripley at Black Barn. Did you and Madeline Bell both go down to, to Ripley, to Paul's studio, to record that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we went down. I went down for a couple of days. That's really cool. It's oh, what, stayed in the cottages, right? Yeah, stayed in the cottages. Sure did. And I've been working with Madeline for... Since I've first been here, we've recorded so many all the Jesus Christ Superstar to get stuff together. So many sessions. All the Barry Gibbs stuff, Bury Me Down by the River and Give a Hand, Take a Hand. She's on those recordings. Madeline's on a lot of stuff. Yeah, me and Madeline, that's my big sister. Yeah. There was this lovely performance on Jules Holland, which you've done a couple of times now with without Paul to promote your own album. But there was a performance of that Woosie Mama on Jules Holland. Andy Crofts has the coolest hat you've ever seen in your life, this massive big black hat. And Paul sat at the piano. I don't know if you remember this. Paul sat at the piano, but he's got his guitar and he's like switching from the guitar to then play the piano and back to yeah. the guitar again. And Steve Craddock is, I mean, you mentioned he's, he's a guitar wizard. He's properly on fire. And that performance on Later with George Solomon. He is proper. Steve Craddock is the business. And I love watching him perform. Like I say, you know, there's so many, him and, and Steve Marriott are, are really like, he's a little bit more like kind of laid back and cool, but he's heavy. He's hard too. Whereas Steve Barry was just, wow, that guy could <laughs> sing, man. But see, he was such a great singer, and he mm. knew how to go to church. His, his his grandmother brought him up listening to Ray Charles, you know, so he had all of that. He knew he knew how to go to church. <laughs> I think that means something different to me thinking he knew actually how to get to the local church, right? <laughs> More than that. <laughs> Um, well, we definitely had church every time we were together. We went to church. <laughs> I think it definitely yeah. means something that's not we went to church. Right. Hey, look, I, I've loved chatting with you, Pat. The book's brilliant as well. I highly recommend that people need to read this story. I mean, surely there's got to be a TV miniseries dealing this story, right? Because it's, I mean, it's a story of resilience. Know. It's a story of a, a, a battler. But it's, I mean, there's highs, there's there's obviously lows that you've talked about as well, and many in the book too, but you keep bouncing back, that bounceability factor, right? It's like, I've come this far by faith. Through all the ups and downs, I try to stay hopeful. I love what I do. I feel like I haven't finished. I haven't been beat down. I've managed to not become bitter. I will tell it like it is. I'm, I prefer living in the now. 
You know, the past is over. I didn't write the book to, I'm not living in the past, even though I have to be talking about it a lot since the book is out. That's difficult, you know, and doing that video, uh, the audio book, that was really difficult. I can imagine, yeah, I can't begin to that was, that was really, really, really difficult because I never, I never read my book to anybody. I never, nobody, my kids, my son, they've never read my book. So nobody, it's only since the, the publishing has taken place, there's the, like, you know, my publishers and editors, they read it. It's been really emotional. I wouldn't say cathartic. I would say it, it, it's more like uh, therapy, mm-hmm. really, because I never had any therapy through any of this. So any therapy I'm going to have will be like, <laughs> it's out here right now, you know, like for all the world to see. But but I'm okay with it, you know, like because I know that I'm not that same person that I was back then. I'm not that same little girl who's scared and dealing with trying to find my way, not only in, in, in the music industry, in life, you know, with, with two young kids and making bad decisions. And, you know, I'm not that same person uh, as far as regrets. The, the biggest regret I have is taking my children through all of this, really, to be honest, and to lose my daughter, you know, while trying to get a bloody record deal. Yeah. That's, uh, that was hard, even though, you know, that decision Debbie made, she made a bad decision that day, just like I made a bad decision that day. I didn't go to my music appreciation class, you know, but her decision was led to fatal results. Yeah. But, you know, it's like that's her, you know, we all have different destinies. And I know that Debbie's spirit is very much alive and well, and she definitely lives in and through me. I don't think she's around me all the time because I'm sure Debbie got work that she's doing on the other side as well, you know, but she is definitely with me. I call on her all the time. I call on all my ancestors, all my family and my brother and all my ancestors, the ones I never knew, I call on them and ask them to help me. If it is God's will for me to still be out here doing this, making a difference, you know, I do not open my mouth to sing without asking God to let his light shine in through and all around me and help me to touch the hearts, souls, and minds of Anybody I come in contact with, you know, it's like it's not about me. I'm not in I'm not in the music industry for celebrity. I've been given a gift and what a blessing that is to have this gift to inspire and uplift others. And that's why I wrote my book. It's not a kiss and tell story. You know, I mean, really, at this age? (laughs) It's quite a bit of kissing in it, but no, you're right. (laughs) Yeah, but a long time ago. You know what I mean? I mean, I'm not doing this to get back. I think it is important, like I said, to do my story, to tell my story, because nobody even mentioned me. They don't even mention me in their books. You know what I mean? And I'm thinking like, well, okay, that's cool. I'm cool with that because I got stories nobody never heard. Tell me about the so a couple of things before you go. So the book, the box set is new news. I hadn't realized this. So yeah, this is, this is next year. Is this something that's a work in progress? Is it ready? To, do you know exactly what's going to be? It's already all the tracks have been chosen. It's nearly we're getting ready to lock it down. When it's all locked down, I'll let you know. I don't like talking about yeah. things until it's locked down. You know. And will we have new music? Will there be new things coming from you in the in the future? Well, I, I hope so. You and me back. So, you know, I've been talking to Steve. Steve has some ideas. He wants to do things. I would love to to do record with Steve. I would love I, I love recording. I'd love for to do some stuff with Paul. You know, I'd love for Paul if he would like to do anything with me. It would be it would be wonderful, you know. I love recording, you know. I sure. Like you say, I have three albums, <laughs> you know, in, a, in 50 something years, I only recorded two or four. I've got yeah. four now that have been released. As long as I got my chops, 
You know, I've got my chops and I love to sing. You and, certainly and I, have. You certainly and have. And, and I've got a bag full of songs of my own that I need to, that need developing. I did a lot of recording during uh, COVID. A lot of writing. I found this bag of songs. I got songs that I've been writing since the 70s. I was never encouraged to, as a writer or anything, but that, that, that that's neither here nor there because it's not about what somebody else encouraged me to do. It's about what I wanted to do. And I didn't have my power or the ability to whatever. Bam. That was then. What's now? I got a bag full of songs, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? And so I love collaborating, as you as you know. So yeah, sure. Oh wow. bring it on. I love it. I love it. Right. Yeah. Two final questions with, for you before okay. you go. Pat. This is the Paul Weller fan podcast. So you're allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. It could be the jam. It could be the style council. It could be Paul Weller solo. It could be something he's sung, something he's written. What would it be? Oh, wow. You know, I need to like, uh, that's, a, that's a difficult question. I might have to give you the answer because I don't know. Paul has such a catalog. There's so much. That, you're the best thing that I ever had. What's that song? You're the best thing. Yeah. You're the best thing. I love that. So let's use that. You're the oh, best thing. Can we have a P.P. Arnold version of that with your band? That would be great. You know what I mean? And that and, and see, that's really, you know, like, like like the spirit really works with me. Because like I said, I, I don't try to pretend like I know everything. Blah, blah, blah. But when it, you, you know, whatever, it's, it's just like my spirit said, you're the best thing. You know what I mean? I heard the song in my head and I know I love that song, you know, so... Now, the purpose of this podcast is to meet amazing people like yourself with these incredible stories, these careers, these connections to Paul Weller. But it's for me to get the interview with Paul Weller that I never managed during my radio career. It was my one big regret from giving up my career as a radio presenter. I just wasn't as good as your friend Johnny Walker, you see. I couldn't be that good. That was, that was the problem. I realized I didn't have that talent. But, so I gave up my radio career, but I one big regret... I'd never interview Paul Weller. If it happens, if I get to interview Paul Weller because of this podcast, what should I ask him, Pat? What should I talk to him about? Ask him about Paul. You know, ask him about Paul. Just like you presented me with questions. Ask him, what, what do you want to know about him? I'd like to just hang out with Paul and learn and, and, and know more about him. Yeah, of course, you know, because I really need to listen to Paul to all of his music, all the style council and all of everything. I need to listen to everything. As you're talking right now, a lot of stuff is going through my head. I can hear a lot of tunes and stuff that I do know, but I need to, um, anyway, just ask him, you, you know, hey, man, this is your man. <laughs> you know, you, you know I'm, I'm sure I'm sure he's like really humbled that, that you're doing this work, you know, and podcasts, it seems to be the way forward. Everybody is doing a podcast. You know, podcasts are like, hey, man, yeah. it's radio. It's, it's, it's internet. It's, it's the new new way forward. It's the modern equivalent of taking it to church, I think is probably the phrase, right? Um, yeah, taking it to church. You know what I mean by taking it to church. <laughs> I think I do now, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, like, just like... Uh, you know, hallelujah, making people shout, you know, do it, you, you know. And that's what Steve Marion was about. You know, he had that that thing, make you want to shout. Yeah. <laughs> Pat, thank you so much for your time. I, I, good luck with the book and the audio book and everything in your life. It's been, you. it's been an absolute joy to have you on the podcast. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me, Dan. Have a nice weekend. Lots of love. My thanks once again to Pat P.P. Arnold. What a super guest. You can find her autobiography in all good bookshops. Hey, it's probably in the bad bookshops as well. It's such a brilliant read. Soul Survivor, available now. Check out the audiobook as well. All the details in the show notes for this podcast. I've also chucked some links up there as well. You can listen to some P.P. Arnold stuff on the website there. You can watch some of the video performances that we talked about as well. All in the show notes for the podcast on my website. PaulWellerFanPodcast.com. A couple of favors to ask of you on this one. Please, if you've enjoyed the podcast, leave a review. It really does help us to find new listeners to the show and share on your social media channels. You can also buy me a virtual coffee on my website, PaulWellerFanPodcast.com. Just type it in there, www.PaulWellerFanPodcast.com and head to the store. You'll find the virtual coffee there, but you can also buy merchandise for the podcast as well if you fancy supporting us that way. Thanks a lot for listening. 
I'll see you next time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.